trying to start a philosophy <laughs> podcast, and we start with the one that references the most <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> oh my god, dude! Yeah. You're listening to a podcast created by the Jacksaway Collective, a podcast where twenty-somethings put their mighty undergrad degrees to use by having laid-back academic discussions about philosophy, short stories, and whatever else we so choose. Today, we talk about Albert Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus, but before that, the guys discuss the ways in which homeless people use differing strategies to get us to give them money. Well, let's get to the show. Honestly, the fucking Blue Yeti would introduce more problems than uh, it would solve, <laughs> as you know. The Blue Yeti. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. Did you ever think of a name? No, I haven't uh, come up with one yet. Yeah, you? I haven't put any. I haven't put any thought into it at all. Um, I figure we just, you know, just wing it the first time around, yeah. and then I feel like it might, might be might be good to like get a few up there, and then just get in the habit of recording and stuff before branding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's where you know you could totally get thrown off the rails, right? You you do all this fucking prep work, and then you never actually <laughs> make never the fucking ever, products, yeah. right? Yeah. So. I have no expectations. Um, this was a fucking hard-ass book to read. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Did you finish the whole book? No, 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 no. Just, uh, just up to page 65 or 64. So just read Absurd Reasoning. I don't know. I don't know where to start. I don't know where to <laughs> go. Um, but I have to ask you this before we, before we get into it. So let me throw, throw a little bit of... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I guess you could, yeah, I guess you could call it philosophy. I don't know, man, but... The other day, or I guess this was maybe two weeks ago now, we were, I was with Tina and we were just driving to her place and there was a homeless man who was standing at the stoplights and he was kind of coming up to you out your window at the stoplight and asking you for money, right? Yeah. You, I'm sure you've encountered this. Yeah, in Toronto. And I'm sh- yeah, and I'm sure you've encountered the whole spectrum, the ones that will come up and wash your windows, the ones that will... Um, you know, you know the whole the whole fucking spiel. Everyone's got their own ways of yeah dealing with it. So, putting aside the question of whether or not you should give money to a homeless person, I don't think that's that interesting of a question. I'm much more interested in whether or not we should be rewarding the Machiavellian style homeless people who go out of their way to get money for you, as opposed to the ones who just sit on the side of the road. Um, because <laughs> the way that I see it, like, should we really be rewarding the ones that are Don't uh, do anything. using... Well, no, I was going to say the opposite. Should we be rewarding oh. the ones that use social psychology to kind of manipulate you into giving them money, i.e. through washing your windows or yeah. even just the most easy distinction? Um, I see this all the time. You'll see the homeless people who sit against the building with a cup in their hand, like a standard homeless person that doesn't say anything, versus the ones who will lay down in the middle of the sidewalk, right? And so yeah. just take that and then imagine an entire spectrum of homeless people. Um, should we be rewarding the ones more that are you know, going out of the way to try and maybe manipulate you, I don't know if that's the right word, into giving you money? What do you think about that? I'm trying to think here. Yeah, it's a tough, I don't know, I don't have a firm I guess, answer on this. I guess, like, we're so, you know, like, work is so ingrained in us that we feel inclined to give them their due when they do things like wash our car and shit. Yeah, they're putting um, in a little bit of work towards you, right? Yeah. Um, I guess the washing the car one is the only, well, the only one that maybe doesn't fall on the spectrum that nice, because that's kind of like the free gift 
technique. Yeah, yeah. Right? But what about the ones that just walks up to the side of your car? Would you be more likely to give it to him? Or, of course, you would be more likely yeah. to give it to him because he's using these psychological tricks to get you to give yeah, money to, to him. Yeah, guilt, to guilting you into... Yeah. Uh... But ought we give it to him is the question. Yeah, I don't know. And then even take the case of, you know, you're walking down the street and you have one very quiet person who's just so desolate and sitting there stranded with his cup versus the person who's laying sprawled out in the middle of the road. That's certainly intentional, right? There's no doubt about that um, because you would feel more bad for the person who's spread eagle in the middle of the fucking sidewalk, <laughs> right? Like, it's such a tough yeah. call because part of me is like, yeah, okay, they're making some sort of uh, active effort to engage yeah. with you. Um, but the other part is like, I think that how they act as a homeless person probably has to do with their kind of individual differences in personality. Which maybe they've maybe they've just like given up. Maybe they were at one point playing hardball and then <laughs> they've just given up. Mm-hmm, exactly, which would make me be more likely to, to the, reward the people who work the least, right? Yeah. So I'm so torn on this, man. I don't know where, where I come down on it. Uh, it's a really, really fucking tough, tough call. Yeah. Some people are like, like, don't give money to homeless people because they actually like kind of do well doing that. Yeah. That's what yeah. some people say. Yeah, I guess you're right. Have you seen those videos online, right, where the one person's begging for money and then they get caught on camera like walking into their vehicle or something like that <laughs> later? <laughs> so, of course, you got to look out for them, right? Of yeah. course, you have to look out for those types of people. I asked, I asked Tina the same thing. She gave me a kind of the cold economic perspective and she's like in a way like all of these homeless people are competing in a kind of market yeah right and so these are just their marketing strategies these are the ways that they are navigating the market of the homeless the homeless world so um, maybe we shouldn't treat it any different than we would any other market system right so the people who are people who are using their branding or their own techniques to get money from you it's no different from what advertisers do to get money from you right so that was her perspective i don't know if that answers the ought uh, of the question but um it certainly makes sense yeah because if you're thinking about like um just a company you're more inclined to use their services or give them money when you're interacting with them more you never know about a company you'll never give them your money right yeah exactly and so it's the same kind of thing with the homeless people if they're not going to make any effort to market themselves present themselves as valuable donators <laughs> or donatees um then maybe we shouldn't give them any money it's yeah i don't know i have i have no i have no firm answer on this one man yeah it's tough i don't know i fucking never give money to homeless people anyways but um <laughs> if i would who would i give it to is the real question i really think though i think that if it came down to it i would be more inclined to give it to the people who who worked for do it nothing. or no, do, nothing? do nothing yeah yeah Maybe just because I'm contrarian, I don't know. But it's a tough call. What would you do? Gun to your head. Uh, you have ten dollars that you can only spend on homeless people. Who are you gonna give it to? Probably the guy who did something for me, mm-hmm. or was like yeah. who was like banging his little paint can with the drumsticks. I'd be more mm-hmm. inclined to do that. Yeah. See, there. Yeah, they're making an, an honest effort, right? They're not yeah. trying to manipulate you specifically. They're trying to present something to the public that would then get that money i'm yeah. actually all for that um <laughs> set up a yeah. patreon for them <laughs> <laughs> get their uh their uh paypal and their venmo and uh... <laughs> he has one of those little like credit card uh, attachments to his phone yes dude oh god <laughs> i don't know man i don't know so 
yeah, that's what I that's what I was thinking about not too long ago. Fucking homeless people. Again, I should be thinking about how to get money to them, but you know, I don't exactly have money to spare. So yeah. Anyways, that's uh that's our first little um, first little ridiculous session. But hopefully next time I'll be more prepared. A little yeah, more well, you, yeah, you got to bring something to the table next time, man. Yeah, bring some sort of weird uh, ethical dilemma or something <laughs> like that. So I guess we'll get to the book. Yeah, man. Uh, uh, this was a very difficult book to read. Um, mm-hmm. We both love. We both love Camus. There's no. Doubt do you about still? It. Do you still have the same appreciation for him after after reading this, or, or have you, um, your thoughts changed? I don't think he's gotten any worse in my mind. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. I guess I see this in an entirely different domain than his fiction. How I feel about him as a strictly philosophical writer my only sample for that is this book yeah. so coming from reading someone like thomas nagel who has so much fucking depth in their philosophy and their analysis but also has such clear writing i would give maybe a knock to Camus for that but i, I get it he's french yeah these french I wonder philosophers if that's, yeah. they're like that right that being said it was also very interesting to read he's very literary in his language when the sentences are flowing very nicely and he's making a great point. I'm so into it, man. Um, it was yeah. at, some t- at some points, it's an absolute pleasure to read. And I bet you I would get a lot more out of it, too, if I had known a bit more about guys like Husserl, Jaspers, Chestov. I had never even heard of Chestov <laughs> before. Kierkegaard. Um, even, even Kierkegaard, right? I, I have very little familiarity with his work. Yeah, I guess, I guess like if I had known maybe a bit more about those authors that he was referencing, I would have gotten those parts... I found them a bit more enjoyable. But when he's purely talking about his own his own reasoning, his own arguments, and he's keeping it kind of internal to the book and the absurd and what he's actually talking about, I thought some parts were, were absolutely excellent and mm-hmm. a pleasure to read. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. For me, like not knowing those other knowing much about it, those other philosophers like ideas really really hurts like having a like doesn't help when you're trying to understand this piece, but... Trying to start a philosophy <laughs> podcast, and we start with the one that references yeah. the most philosophy. <laughs> oh, my God, dude. Summer, yeah, though. yeah. we literally jumped in the deep, the deep end, dude. <laughs> the deepest of fucking ends. At the same time, this will be one of those books that I think when we finish it, we'll be very happy that, yeah. uh, that <clears throat> we finished it, and I'm sure we'll revisit it one day yeah, for sure. way down the line, and we'll come back to it and be like, damn, like this is where we started, and... Now we'll get all the references. We'll get, we'll understand all of the other uh, philosophers named in here, and I bet you we'll be able to take a lot out of it on a second read through as well. Mm-hmm. Um, for now, just you know, like you said, it's it's like climbing that tall ass mountain, pushing that boulder. Uh, yeah, yeah. With Heidegger, not... with Heidegger <laughs> sitting on top of the rock. <laughs> hands behind his back (laughs) yeah he's up there you know just pondering nature and technology and uh, looking down (laughs) upon us as we struggle our way through yeah man i could read i could read no more than 10 pages at a time with this book yeah so i guess i guess a good spot to start really is um i think he kind of he like the intro to the book he basically is saying that um this book is not making an argument at least this is how i understood it it's not making an argument to try and posit that the absurd exists Um, i think that at the beginning of the essay he was very much trying to say like let's take the fact that the absurd exists and it exists a priori from the start of this essay let's take that as the starting point of course he gives some examples of the absurd but i think in that intro intro little um abstract as the book starts he's very much saying like 
I'm not going to try and prove to you that the absurd exists. I'm just going to take that as a given and let's go from there. Did, yeah. Did you get the same thing? Yeah. Like what I got out of it was he wanted to see like what are the consequences of it, right? I thought that yeah, was like a so. starting point. Yeah. Given the fact that this exists, where do we go now? Let's both go ahead and give just in a kind of quick paragraph form. How would you describe the absurd? I had this written down somewhere. Yeah. Just give you one sec. No problem. What I kind of understood was that uh, us human beings as we exist, we kind of live with this very strong desire to find meaning and uh, search for for purpose in the world. So we have, like, this is kind of something that we internally as human beings strive for and long for um, in our existence. And uh, the absurd comes from that fact contradicted with the fact that uh, there is a world out there that exists that um, offers us none of those things. Um, a world that, at least as we can see it, has no meaning to offer us. Yeah. So here we are searching for this meaning in a world that, as far as we can tell, has none to offer us. Um, and so we're basically, us living with this contradiction in our mind is what makes the absurd arise. Yeah, for sure. I think that was spot on. I kind of think of it as a dialectic kind of relationship. I think if you were to turn to... I have it here on page 20. Penguin Books, great ideas. Mine only has the myth of Sisyphus. It doesn't have the other essays. Right, right. Page 20. So I don't know where that would put you, but it's in it's in absurd walls near the end of okay, it. Okay, right. Hey, let me just read a quick passage here. It says, But what is absurd is the confrontation of the irrational and the wild longing for clarity whose call echoes in the human heart. The absurd depends as much on man as on the world. For the moment, it is all that links them together. It binds them one to the other as only hatred can wield two creatures together. So what I took from this was that the absurd that is something that doesn't just exist within the human being and our own psyche. Instead, it exists within the relationship between our own human psyche and the world out there. So it's, mm -hmm. it's the relationship between these two in the kind of, you know, dialectical uh, you can you can picture exactly the type of graph that I'm going to draw with my hands here, yeah. with one arrow pointing at the other as they feed off each other in a kind of cycle. It's that specific relationship, yeah. not just the world and not just the human psyche, yeah, he, that gives he, rise to the absurd. He goes on to say that in Philosophical Suicide. He says something exactly like that, like, the absurd lies in neither of the elements compared. It is born of their confrontation. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, so I think I think we're both kind of on the same page. I think that the absurd is this kind of relationship between um, man and the world, and how irre irreconcilable these two these two things are. Mm -hmm. Do you have any any kind of examples of the absurd? Because hmm. he does give like I think in philosophical suicide he talks about these like absurd instances, and they're like they're like contradictory in nature, right? But I don't know. Yes, if yes, that I remember any... that. Right, I know exactly like what you're talking about, though. He talks about the virtuous man and uh, his desire to sleep with his cousin or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Because that, I guess he was giving so many different examples of the absurd, right? This yeah. one is the kind of juxtaposition of two like very incompatible ideas. Like you have the virtuous man on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you have his like desire for incest. So these two things are kind of juxtaposed from each other, which, which we would say that's absolutely absurd. That's yeah. one example of the absurd, I think. I'm trying to find if there were other ones, because, yeah, I, I very specifically remember that 
that example. Maybe a different example of the absurd. This one's uh, uh, different from that kind of juxtaposition. This one's earlier on. It's on page 11. It says, it happens that the stage set collapses. Oh, right, right. Um, rising tram, four hours in the officer factory, meal, tram, four hours of work, meal, sleep, and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, according to the same rhythm. This path is easily followed most of the time. But one day, the why arises, and everything begins in that weariness tinged with amazement. Begins, this is important, weariness comes at the end of the acts of a mechanical life. It awakens consciousness and provokes what follows. What follows is the gradual return into the chain, or it is the definitive awakening. So... I think that this was, at least that first half, is one of those areas where I really love his writing. Um, he really mm -hmm. kind of gets into that, the monotony of the factory job. I'm immediately thinking of, remember when we read Technic um, by Dirk Leach in uh, Warren Steele's class? I think so. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember. That's the about, uh, car factory story. Yeah, right? yeah. The investigative he, journalist. Yeah, yeah. He um, checked himself into a Mercedes production line for months at a time. Yeah, I, for some reason, I remember that mm -hmm. a lot. But... Um, there it is. Like there is a person living their routine mechanical lifestyle. And it is not until the end of those acts when he decides to reflect upon his mechanical life that he then becomes confronted with the absurdity of his life. Yeah. Because here are all these things that I'm doing. Why the hell am I doing them? Where is this purpose? Yeah. So there, there he becomes confronted yeah. with this kind of meaninglessness. Yeah. So I think that's another, another kind of form of the absurd that, uh, that we can become confronted with. It was kind of funny how um, he he alluded to Sartre, but he didn't even mention him because I guess because they were like fighting, right? Is this post? Is this book post feud for them? I don't know because he writes. Um, he doesn't even mention his name, but he says this discomfort in, in the face of man's own huma inhumanity, this incalculable tumble before the image of what we are, this nausea, as a writer of today calls it. It's also the absurd. Mm, mm, <laughs> yep, there's some clear Sartre right there. There you go. But yeah, that's. Do you think similar. that's a shot? Do you think that's a shot I, at him, or just? I think uh, he just didn't even. Yeah, I don't know, because the way I read it was like, yeah, we have similar ideas, but I'm not even gonna like mention him. <laughs> not even gonna engage with him, which is actually it has to be a shot because think of how much name dropping he does of all of yeah. the philosophers, right? And this one he goes out of his way to specifically not as a writer him. of today. <laughs> yeah, dude, that's uh, that's harsh. Well, you know, those two those two had quite the relationship. So okay, yo, so I have a question for you. In the passage that I read. Um, he very much talks about the kind of mechanical lifestyle. Also, uh, actually, very quickly, I thought that was very interesting that even after you recognize this absurdity, you kind of slowly and inevitably fall back into it again over time. Yeah. Um, you may have these brief moments of realization and awakening. Okay, I've been confronted with the absurd. But at that point, you become kind of trapped. How, what are yeah, you yeah. then supposed to do? Which is, I guess, the crux of this whole entire book is once you were confronted with this, how then do you act? Yeah. And I think that he was great to show the cycle of just falling back into it, no matter how many times you recognize that yeah. you're um, in the absurd. But um, isn't that what he means when he says we get in the habit of living before acquiring the habits of thinking? Is that is that like falling yeah. back into yeah. mechanical life? I think you're totally right. Um, I think was, you're you're totally fucking right. Where is this written? Uh, that was page eight, That's and he uses quote. the term uses the term eluding. Do you have the whole passage? We get into the habit of living before acquiring the habit of thinking. In that race which daily hastens us toward death, the body maintains its irreparable lead. 
In short, the essence of that contradiction lies in what I shall call the act of eluding because it is both less and more than a diversion in the Pascalian sense. Another name drop. Pascal, right? Yeah. Yeah. Damn, dude. Damn. These fucking name drops. But uh, uh, no, I, I totally get it, though. It's that kind of cycle. And so my question for you is, uh, at least in the passages that I read, you talked specifically about the mechanical lifestyle. So do you think that that this kind of routine mechanical lifestyle is being accentuated or um, um, increased by modern technology? Like, do you think that these the kind of living without being conscious of your own living, just like that passage you read, is that happening more and more in our life due to the fact that we can kind of submit ourselves to modern technology or do you think uh, do you think not hmm. i think maybe you know like everyone's so obsessed with the, these productivity hacks and how to get work done faster maybe i guess that's our way of eluding this mechanical life but i guess hmm. you could you could say that oh you can go on and do your fun things after work you know if you're doing these like productivity hacks and all this shit but i don't yeah, know what do you think true. It's a tough one because it's very easy to place the blame on modern technology. Yeah. This is the area that we live in. Um, it's a kind of easy scapegoat. But on the other hand, you know, our, is the work that we're doing now, although upon reflection might seem equally as meaningless, is it any different than working um, in something like the Industrial Revolution, that era? And so what I think of immediately is Karl Marx, right, when he talks right, about right. alienation, and the de-skilling of labor and the increased uh, disconnect between a worker and the fruits of his labor. Whereas before the Industrial Revolution, you have someone who, who is the town shoemaker, and he makes the shoe from beginning to end, and he has a social relationship with the people in his community because everyone in the, in the community is wearing his shoes, and he is having a relationship with them, whatever labors they are producing, he is also interacting with and taking. Whereas um, I would say post-industrial revolution, where instead you have the kind of Dirk Leach technic uh, manufacturing line of production, uh, we have the de-skilling of labor, where there's actually no real connection between the job and the human relationships that you have. And instead you have a very de-skilled job and you have an increased level of alienation between um, yourself and your work, maybe that would uh, contribute to um, an increased feeling of the absurd. I think it's definitely possible, um, especially when he talks, when, when Camus talks about that kind of uh, daily grind of going to the factory, going to the office yeah. and eating your meal. Again, I don't think that before the Industrial Revolution, that the I don't think the absurd simply didn't exist, but I definitely think it's easier for us to fall into that trap. Well, I don't know. What do you think about that? I was just thinking, though, like, is the is work like a necessity to fall into this trap? Yeah, that's the thing, right? It's again, you could have a very fulfilling job where you have a great social connection with your entire community, and you can still run into the absurd. That yeah. doesn't change, right? It really hinges on that self reflection because even if you are doing something that's great and you're very fulfilled by, at least subjectively, um, you can still be confronted by the fact that there is no true purpose behind that thing. So. Mm -hmm. Um, that also kind of disproves uh, what I just said. So but it's I, a tough one. I don't know how yeah. I fall down on that. But um, running into the absurd is not necessarily like a bad thing. It's I guess it's how we react to it, right? Yeah, I guess. So that's a good transition, actually. So we've spent so much time talking about what the absurd is and examples of it. Um, but yeah, so given the fact that the absurd I I exists, 
how is it that we act? So let's get into let's get into that. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some other responses that we can have? So yeah, he talks about are we going to get into philosophical philosophical suicide from this point, or should we? Um, like yeah, let's do it. But so go on. Like he talks about eluding, and then he, he mentions hope, but I don't know if that's um, part of philosophical suicide. Like on page eight, he mentions like eluding. Okay, so hold on. What is the dictionary definition of eluding? I got evade or escape. Yeah, no, you're right. I'm getting evade or escape from danger or enemy or pursuer, or also of an achievement or something desired. Um, so you can fail to be attained by someone. Okay, so eluding is the invariable game, the typical act of eluding. The fatal evasion that constitutes the third theme of this essay is hope. Okay, uh, so I, guess I don't know. That, I guess that is philosophical suicide if that is the third theme, right? Because there's mm-hmm. there's three themes here, right? Absurd. I think so. Absurdity and suicide, absurd walls, and then philosophical suicide. I think I think you're right. And so I think one of the biggest reasons he goes into so much of the philosophy of these other thinkers is because he kind of touches on the fact that Every single one of them, in their own way, kind of recognizes this contradiction, recognizes the absurd. But I think that he also says that every single one of them tries to elude this yeah. concept by by thinking about it in some different way, pretending as if one one side of this contradiction actually doesn't exist. Yeah. Or, um, you know, I think he talks about Kierkegaard instead, kind of turning to God as the answer. Yeah. So I think that he's calling these people out for recognizing the absurd, but then eluding, yeah, yeah, exactly, eluding their responsibility of dealing with it. Yeah, wow, this is a this is a tough one, man. You're definitely right. He's definitely calling these people out for you know he's giving them props on the one hand. These guys all are not afraid to initially confront the absurd, but at the same time, they're all kind of doing some sort of mental gymnastics to yeah. to really avoid the the consequences of dealing with uh, this contradiction. So yeah, for. What I got out of it was for Chestov and Kierkegaard, they deify the absurd. From my understanding, I thought that meant like, oh, we don't understand the absurd. And then I guess like that's kind of like God almost. Like, mm-hmm. They deify absurd. That's uh, And then they talked about deifying. Uh, did you get the sense that he called them out for the same thing with rationality too? Because he yeah. talks a lot about rationality. Oh, yeah, this is this is the most difficult part of the essay for me to understand, man. Yeah, so I got this quote on page 39. 39, okay. He gives the irrational, so he, as a Kierkegaard, gives the irrational the appearance and God the attributes of the absurd, unjust, incoherent, and incomprehensible. Since nothing is proved, everything can be proved. So yeah, I guess this would fall on the side of the oh, you know what? No, I can't. It can't pick a. It can't pick a side. It would have to be just. Of course, there's no meaning in the world, but maybe there is. We just we cannot. We don't have access to it. It doesn't yeah. mean it doesn't exist. But what does have access to it? That is God, maybe. Yeah. Um, again, maybe through our own human experience, we can't find that meaning, that purpose. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It just seems to be outside of our own human um, capacities. Mm-hmm. Oh man, this yeah, this was where the essay <laughs> totally, totally became extremely difficult for me to understand, man. I think um, this this quote here might help us too. Uh, it goes, we're kind of going, we're kind of jumping over the place, but yeah, on no page problem. thirty-five, because Chestov, what I got it, what I understood is Chestov kind of also deifies the absurd too, right? Um, okay. So 
on page 35, to Chestov, reason is useless, but there is something beyond reason. So I guess that could be like God or something to explain all this stuff that we don't know. And then he goes, mm -hmm. to an absurd mind, reason is useless, and there is nothing beyond reason. Right. Okay. So there you see him kind of fetishizing uh, reason, perhaps, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, you can kind of see him, at least his tone, he's calling these people out again because maybe Chestov, in his case, yes, the absurd exists, but they're, uh, oh, dude, no, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> Reason is useless, but there is something beyond reason. Okay, so just maybe with Kierkegaard, maybe we don't have access to purpose and meaning in life, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Maybe it's the same kind of logic here, but in sub out God and put in reason, our ability to reason. Yeah. He also goes, I think earlier on in Philosophical Suicide, he talks about like how the thoughts, or not thoughts, but like how the thinking negates itself and maybe is that like this sort of negating oh yes i remember this part he talked man there was a do you remember the Aristotle when he talks about aristotle oh right right yeah that was where it was actually quite clear to me um and i didn't i didn't highlight that spot because he talked about saying that the way that a universal truth kind of contradicts itself yeah right? everything is true then you were also yeah, taking exactly. on the fact that everything this is, is not true yeah everything is false so like there's that internal contradiction which is why you can kind of see this through line of him railing against any sort of unifying worldview, comprehensive, unifying theory of, of the world, whether that be through, through God, through our uh, reason, capacity yeah. for reason, any sort of belief system. He's very much railing against that because he's saying that as soon as you endorse a unifying worldview, it, it inevitably itself. negates itself and contradicts itself. Yeah. Um, which is why he's so insistent on us living with this contradiction of the absurd mm -hmm. and not trying to place some theory over it or shift the frame of it, or you know what I mean? Yeah. He's like, no, let's take this contradiction with us and let's carry it with us um, as we move forward. Mm -hmm. I wish I could find the Aristotle quote, but do you remember what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, right? I remember like, reading that. I feel actually like that was a small breakthrough for me. Um, I feel a little bit, <laughs> a little bit more knowledgeable. Um, man, this the philosophical suicide was the toughest, the toughest part of this whole essay. Mm -hmm. oh, okay, um, Did you find it? here's actually no, this is a bit different, but it's still kind of in the vein of what we're talking about with rationality. Um, this is for me on page forty. It says it must be repeated that the reasoning developed in this essay leaves out altogether the most widespread spiritual attitude of our enlightened age, the one based on the principle that all is reason, which aims to explain the world. It is natural to give a clear view of the world after accepting the fact that it must be clear. So I think here he's calling out that universal theory that we can discover all there is about the world through our pure rational capacities, right? Because he's saying that, okay, here we are taking as a given that um, everything can be understand, understood through reason and rationality. But why are we not questioning this initial premise? Why are we assuming that the world itself is something that can be figured out through any sort of capacities, whether that be rational or spiritual? And I think he calls it spiritual because he, he probably the people who are champions of rationality, just as they are today, science, you know, people who champion reason, yeah. um, they talk as if the entire world can be figured out through 
the scientific method or just, I keep saying they're rational capacities, but you know what I mean. But this is a fallacy, right? This is, this is, this is a farce. He's calling this out because they're taking on board a very core assumption that the world is something that can be figured out through these means. And that is not necessarily true. I don't know what this makes him, um, whether he just becomes a full relativist or not. Do you, did you listen to the uh, Partially Examined Life? On Camus? On, yeah. Wes, he really liked this essay, but he, or he, he pointed out the fact that Camus you know, challenges these unifying theories, whether you know, it's God or whatever it is. But he also made it very clear that Camus is not a relativist. He's not saying that there's no truth. He called him instead a skeptic. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very kind of very fine-grained distinction, but he's not saying, so I guess what, I'm going to, you know, butcher this a little bit, but Wes was trying to say that although Camus is pushing aside all of these things, it doesn't mean that he thinks that there's no answer to the question, there's no um, um, solution that doesn't involve some some sort of uh, way to find meaning in the world. Mm-hmm. He's just very skeptical of the ones that have already been proposed. Yeah. But yeah, like he says here on page 40, I merely want to remain in this middle path where the intelligence can remain clear. It seems like he just wants to, I guess he trusts what he can see, or I guess what he can know, right? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's only taking on what we can absolutely know, right? Mm-hmm. He's not taking any sort of leaps of faith, whether that be a leap of faith in in trusting in God or a leap of faith in trusting in reason um, or any sort of um, all-encompassing belief system, I think. And I think that's the whole, if I understand, like he is calling this act that Kierkegaard, Husserl, um, Jaspers, all of these philosophers are falling into. um, I think he's calling this kind of mental gymnastics they're doing the act of philosophical suicide. Yeah. Because they are taking these things for granted when they absolutely should not be. I have two other things that I I wanted to talk about. One, this is going way back to the beginning of the book, page six. The quote is, in the face of such contradictions and obscurities, must we conclude that there is no relationship between the opinion one has about life and the act one commits to leave it? So I think he's making the claim here. So many of these philosophers claim that there is no meaning in life, but they are not acting on that. Um, because if they were, then perhaps they would commit suicide, right? Mm-hmm. Because he mentions the one author, I don't think he gives their name, who writes the entire book and then commits suicide immediately afterwards, right? Oh, yeah. In this kind of... Do you remember that? I have... he In my edition, there's like a little... Uh, what's that word for? Like for when there's... Oh, no. Yeah. I have heard of an emulator of... I can't... Peregrinos? Post-war writer who, after having finished his first book, committed suicide to attract attention to his work. Attention was, in fact, attracted, but the book was judged no good. <laughs> Sucks. <laughs> You're right. No, I found the footnote too. That's hilarious, man. Yeah, of course. Never heard of this guy before. His little strategy did not work. <laughs> so the reason I bring this quote up, though, is it's kind of a more broad question that's not necessarily strictly to do with the act of suicide or this essay itself, but more between the connection between what one philosophically professes and How what one, one actually acts out in the world, right? Should there be a relationship between these two things, does it really matter if 
if someone is proclaiming, if a philosopher is proclaiming one thing, but not necessarily acting it out in the world, does the idea itself become void or not? But uh, keep in mind on the first page, he says, and if it is true, as Nietzsche claims, that a philosopher to deserve respect must preach by example, you can appreciate the importance of that reply. So, so it seems as if, it seems as if Nietzsche believes that there should be a connection between these two things. Yeah. And if you believe something, you definitely should act on it mm-hmm. to be a good philosopher, I guess. It's a tough one. I feel very conflicted about it. I don't know. Do you remember Peter Singer, right? Yeah. He, I think I'm very much thinking about his philosophy of effective altruism. And we ought to give up X amount of our dollars to to save lives, right? Um, it's a very small sacrifice for us to to save so many lives. The imperative, the onus is on us to do something like that. Mm -hmm. And he's someone that actually acts that out, right? He will go ahead and um, give X amount of dollars to uh, uh, buy malaria bug nets for people in Africa, and he's actively saving lives. And I don't know if you remember his metaphor of the shallow pond, his thought thought experiment. How does that one go again? So it's a kind of guy who just gets back from from the shopping mall, he's bought himself a nice new pair of shoes. They cost him $200. And on the way home, he walks past a shallow pond and he sees a young child drowning in the pond. And so the question becomes, does he sacrifice the brand new shoes that that he just bought for $200 to go and save the child that's drowning right in front of him? And of course, the, the answer is Yes, absolutely. I'm sure you'd agree with that. But then he then kind of extends this to be like, well, there are people who are dying every single day that we can save with X, with a dollar amount that just are not as close in proximity to us. So why is it that we that we have the imperative to act in the shallow pond case, but not in the uh, malaria bug net case? So he very much believes that we should act impartially in both of these situations, and that's why he gives up so much of his income to to um, to try and save these people by buying them bug nets. So he's an example of a philosopher that acts out what he preaches, right? Yeah. It's basically to do practice what you preach. But at the same time, if he didn't do that, if he didn't donate all of this money to to these great charities that are saving these people. Would that make his ideas void? Would this make would it make his ideas any less valuable? Um, and personally, mm. I think no. Oh, that's interesting. It's a tough one. It doesn't yeah. have to be specifically to this example either. Like any sort of belief that you have, um, or any sort of great idea that a thinker has, why is the truth or falsity of that statement or that profession contingent on whether or not they acted it out? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's a tough one, right? Because because your your gut really... your gut reaction says yeah, they should you know, practice what they preach, but does it even matter if they do it? I definitely think that the idea has value in itself, whether or not the individual who had the idea acts it out, because I think that there should be a degree of separation between the idea and the individual, right? So again, that was a kind of a more broad question, but it kind of relates to the essay, right? If these philosophers are making the conclusion that there is no meaning in life and that the there is no purpose and what the hell are we doing here why are they not the ones acting out their beliefs and committing committing suicide right which kind of leads me sorry go on but that's why they turn to their philosophical suicide right yeah exactly exactly there's their there's their out that's their excuse (laughs) right 
um, which is what I think Camus, Camus was trying to call them all out on. Yeah, what I like kind of struggled with, but I guess maybe it's in the next chapter is like, like how does the absurd man, I guess, live his life, you know? Like what are the the benefits of doing, like living like an absurd man? At least from what I understand, at least from the Partially Examined Life podcast, he gets into that a lot more in the second half of the book. Right. So we might have a bit more information on that the next time we record. Um, because you're right, he's very much diagnosing the problem, but he's not necessarily offering much of a prescription mm-hmm. um, in terms of how to act. Other than, I don't know if you remember, this is near the end of the first half where he talks about quantity of life being very important. Yeah. Which I don't know what you got out of that. He was very much, I had never heard anything like this, but he talked about the quantity of life being even more important than the quality of it. Yeah, that confused me because I like normally you would think that quality is more important. Yeah, I would. I would think it's a it's a it's a no brainer, right? <laughs> did you did you get a sense of his actual argument as to why? I was having a really hard time understanding quantity of life is something that we should be striving for. The mm-hmm. quantity of experience being a good in itself. There's this one paragraph on page 61 that I, he says, the most living in the broadest sense, that rule means nothing. It calls for definition. It seems to begin with the fact that the notion of quantity has not been sufficiently explored. That paragraph. Okay, so he's kind of setting up the, the argument to take yeah. it down, I think. For it can account for a large share of human experience. A man's rule of conduct and his scale of values have no meaning except through the quantity and variety of experiences he has been in a position to accumulate. He mentions um, on page 62, but again, it is the absurd in its contradictory life that teaches us. And then he goes on, two men living the same number of years, the world always provides the same number of experiences. It It is up to us to be conscious of them, being aware of one's life, one's revolt, one's freedom and to the maximum, is living, and to the maximum. I think that maybe when he's talking about quantity, he's talking about kind of being, I don't know, I don't want to sound so cliche, right, but being present in, in like, being actually conscious, right, not just being mm-hmm. on the kind of default setting of the the factory mechanical life that we talked yeah. about earlier, where he talks about these two men one never takes a moment to reflect upon his mechanical lifestyle, never becomes confronted with the absurd, never questions it, and never acts in a way in response to that realization. Whereas the other one does make that realization and then instead tries to make the most of his his current experience by filling it with variety um, and novelty and all of these things. Mm-hmm. So although these two might be living the exact same amount of uh, time, quote-unquote, one is actually getting a much greater quantity of experience. Uh, Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, yeah, that makes sense, because then he goes on later on page 63. The present and the succession of the presence before a constantly conscious soul is the ideal of the absurd man. So, yeah. Okay, so I think that, yeah, I, I guess he's maybe saying, like, the recognition of the absurd is contributing to that kind of consciousness as opposed to, unconsciousness and when i say unconsciousness i don't mean anesthetic or sleeping i mean just that kind of mechanical default setting yeah um unpresent uh lifestyle so if, if that's the case that he's making then i actually agree with him that quantity is uh mm-hmm. is a good thing okay yeah that's that's 
that's quite interesting, actually. It's tough, though, because a member earlier, you, you, even though you recognize the absurd, you very slowly fall, you can fall back into the same thing mm -hmm. an infinite a number of times, right? So I'm, hopefully he has some sort of prescriptive measures for not falling into it as often or recognizing um, where, when you have fallen into it or how to create that kind of quantity or variety or novelty in your life. I mean, the only thing I can think of really is, again, cliche, but it's meditation, right? But meditation has been mm -hmm. very helpful for me, not just during the act of meditating, but later on in the day, um, kind of waking the hell up and being conscious and aware of what the hell's going on around you. Yeah, for sure. Like you just mentioned, like constantly kind of waking yourself up almost. He uses, mm -hmm. um, on page 54, I wrote, I wrote down my notebook, Revolt is the constant confrontation between man and his own obscurity the result the, re, the, revolt, the revolt gives life its value so yeah yeah i think so um so maybe the act of revolt is doing your best to not fall back into that mode and instead okay, yeah, once you recognize that yeah once you recognize the absurd carry it with you mm -hmm. at all times um, keep it present in your mind as you act throughout the world at all times. Mm -hmm. um, and don't suppress it or pretend as if it doesn't exist. Um, um, you keep it present and use it to your advantage. That is your revolt, right? Yeah. That, that could become that could become your own purpose mm -hmm. in its own way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense actually. Like don't yeah, don't and, uh, run from it and don't kill yourself. There's a uh, this is kind of a tangent, I guess, but I read the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, and in it, he talks about um, a Nietzsche quote, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. So Frankl was using it in the context of these people in the concentration camp who, you know, although they have everything uh, uh, taken away from them, they have that that why to live, that, you know, that purpose that they have found, and so because they have that why it doesn't matter what happens to them they can hold on to this and that will get them through and so i think there's it's kind of parallel to this act of revolt right the act of revolting against the absurd could be your why and once you have that why whatever life throws at you you can confront it and maybe that is sisyphus rolling that boulder <laughs> up the hill he's he's choosing his own mentality in his given circumstance, right? Yeah, he sure. has his own why. So it doesn't matter what the how is. It doesn't matter that he has to push this fucking boulder up the hill over and over again. He has that 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 raison d'etre, right? The reason for being. And because he hangs on to it, whatever circumstances around him don't have power over him because he is revolting. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, I'm sure that they'll get more into that. Camus will get more into that later on in the essay. There's still no mention of Sisyphus yet. Half of the fucking book. <laughs> it was I think taking that's his like, time. His, I don't, that's like, is that a different essay altogether? Or is that the last chapter in this? The last chapter. Um, so again, in Partially Examined Life, they talk about the myth of Sisyphus existing in its book form like this, but also just a seven-page essay that is also just assigned an intro to philosophy classes, just right, right. a seven-page essay. So um, once we approach this final myth of Sisyphus essay, we'll be well prepared, I guess. <laughs> I hope. This is just kind of a, a similar side thought. Um, this is page 10 for me. It says, there is a moral to it. It teaches that a man defines himself by his make-believe 
as well as by his sincere impulses. We kind of define ourselves in two ways. It's defined how we are now, how we are acting now, and our ideal selves, um, how we uh, want to act or how we ought to act. And so this is something that we kind of take on board in everything that we think about, whether that's you know something as simple as uh, your diet, right? How you are acting in the moment versus how your ideal self um, would act. Uh, it seems to be universal that we think of ourselves yeah. in this way and think about the ways that it affects um, how we act and it affects our values as well. You know, the, the, we, there's a clear distinction between how things are and how things ought to be. This is something that we think about all the time. And so I think values arise from our act of answering the question of how things ought to be, right? This is where our values come up. How do you feel about this? Do you think about, do you think about things this way as between the kind of divided coalesced self or, or not? This, this quote kind of kind of reminds you of the whole bad faith by Sartre. Okay. The make-believe thing. Yeah, I think you're onto something. I think you're onto something. Um, yeah, because and also you could think of uh, like Judith Butler's performativity too. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, how is it that we actually are? How is it that we're performing? Or how is it that we think we ought to act in a given situation? Why is it that we make this distinction in almost everything that we do? Like I said, it, it can really be anything. Yeah, I don't know. How, I don't know where I'm going with this, but uh, there's some connections to be had there. Mm-hmm. That exhausts all my notes, dude. I don't <laughs> know if you have anything else. I was just gonna say, like, I don't know where I'm going this, with this either, but like maybe it's because existentialism like choosing how you want to behave and choosing who you want to be is just way more challenging than just oh i'm this person and that's how it is you know yeah i think that existentialism has helped me kind of realize a lot of my own autonomy untapped autonomy right in the way that you you can really will into existence the kind of person that you want to be or the kinds of things that you want to do or things that you want to bring about in the world we have these capacities and um it's just a matter of willing them into existence right Mm -hmm. certainly not an easy process but once you realize that it's possible you can become kind of emancipated from things like the social situation that you're in or the hierarchical role that you're familial unit or your culture says that you you have to play or fall into once you realize that this is possible you can kind of to the best of your abilities uh, arise above it and do your best to act in the world in a way that you see fit not a way that the world sees fit for you Mm -hmm. um yeah any other any other closing closing thoughts um i think that's it like i i have a much better understanding of that revolt now Mm -hmm. after we talked it out yeah for me as well i think that um again we're not i'm certainly not there yet but i have a little bit of a better understanding of what he's trying to do when he's talking about these other philosophers as well in the ways that he's praising them in the ways that he's calling them out the way that camus is kind of revolting against a unifying theory and his desire for us to keep this contradiction of the absurd condition of man in mind at all times. Mm-hmm. And so once we do that, how do we act? I'm hoping for more answers in the second half of this book. Whether or not they come, we'll find out. Dude, this was this was fucking great. Yeah, like time just flew by. I'm looking at the clock, the little timer thing. Yeah, we're at 80 <laughs> minutes. Oh my god, dude, it's crazy. What do you oh, what yeah. do you, 
like moving forward, what do you think we should do? Should we try like a different book and then maybe return to these chapters later or should we press on? Oh man, that's a tough one. I would actually, I would stagger. I would actually mm -hmm. be down to stagger, but I yeah. do want to finish this book. Yeah. Um, but this was an absolute fucking boulder up the hill. There's no <laughs> doubt. So to, to space it out with something else, yeah, I think uh, I would help I would be us. totally down. Yeah, I, think I, would, I don't know if you might would. add like, might even help us understand this too, like moving forward if yeah. we bounce around a bit. But I'd be down um, to do a short story too. Yeah, send me a short story, and then whatever it is, I'll print it off. We'll read it. All right. So fuck yeah, man. Well done. Well, I All guess right. let's end it here, and then if you need me, just just text me. Okay. Have a good All night. Right. Peace out, dude. Likewise.